Amen. Amen. Yes. If you have a Bible, chapter 40. Forty. Maybe I'm going to be okay. There we go. All right. There we are. All right. Exodus chapter 40. We come, friends, to the end of our journey through the book of Exodus. It's incredible to think we started back in Genesis 1-1. Feels like a long time ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. Now we find ourselves at the end of the Exodus. And today we're going to consider chapters 35 to 40. But the good news One, we're not going to look at everything that's in there today because a lot of it's stuff we've already read and studied before. The people take the instructions that they were given to build the tabernacle, and it tells us, and so they did what God told them to do. They built the tabernacle according to God's command. But here, at the ending of the Exodus, we see incredible promises, incredible reminders, an incredible summary of the entire book, and a punchline that connects us to this Christmas season. So all we're going to read together before looking at this section is Exodus chapter 40, the final chapter, and let's look at God's word together. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And he shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And he shall set up the court around it and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then he shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy." You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest." He shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anoint their father and they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. In the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put in the place the screen door for the door of the tabernacle. And he set the burnt, the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. As he erected the court around the tabernacle and around the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of God. I don't know about you, but endings can be incredibly frustrating. I don't know if you've ever been really invested in a book or a movie, and you get to the end, and the writer or director decided to end it in the opposite way you were hoping for them to. Sometimes you get to the end. I've gotten to the end of some movies and been like, what just happened? I don't understand. It comes up with a confusing ending. And all the stories we heard as a kid always ended with those words, and they lived happily ever after. Yet I come to realize very few stories actually end that way. And then sometimes endings are really new beginnings. And that is the case with the end of Exodus. Remember, Exodus wasn't the beginning of the story. It was a continuation of something that had began long before, all the way back at the beginning in the book of Genesis. God created everything and placed mankind in the garden, free from sin, and God called it good. Not long after that, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent. They disobeyed God's word, and the whole of creation was plunged into darkness, brokenness, and sin. From that moment, God enacted a plan to save the world and to bring his people back into his presence, and he would do it through the birth of a son. A child would be born who would crush the deceptive serpent and bring the world back to Eden, but better. Generations came and went. There was a flood. And if you remember Noah's family, they had all sons. And if you know Noah's sons, they were certainly not savior sons by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, Noah's sons plunged the world into further darkness so much that the people got to the point they were trying to build a tower up to God to somehow bring themselves to bring God down to them. The world was plunged into darkness and division and confusion. And out of a pagan nation, God called a man named Abraham. 
and said, Abraham, through you, I am going to bless the nations, and through you is going to come a promised one. God was going to, through Abraham, bring a savior son who would reverse the curse, crush the serpent, and bring his people home. Abraham had sons, his sons had sons, and his sons had sons. And from one man with a barren wife, we now had a nation that was enslaved in Egypt. The Hebrew people, in the midst of all of that, though, held on to the promise. And the story of Exodus picks up there and continues where Genesis left off. And even the ending of Exodus isn't the ending of the story. Just as we read in chapter 40, we can tell something else is coming because the tabernacle was brought up on the first day of a new year. But there was more awaiting them. Exodus wasn't the end of the story. It's simply a second chapter of a story of redemption that God is writing and crafting. In fact, Exodus is simply part two of the story you're a part of. The story that God is writing and crafting. And these last five chapters of Exodus function as a reminder and a review of the whole book, a summary of the whole, and they give us four truths that arise from the end of the Exodus. Four truths that we need to see that are relevant to us in our journey of faith. First, the first thing we learn from the book of Exodus is that God saves his people. God saves his people. This has been one of the central themes of the whole book. Remember, the name of the book is Exodus. It's all built around how God brought his people out from under the hands of the Egyptians. He judged Egypt through plagues and through the blood of the Passover lamb. God brought his people out into the wilderness He even planned for them to build a tent while they were there, the tabernacle, which was a picture of the garden that mankind had long left behind. The tabernacle in the wilderness was meant to be a picture of Eden while they were in the wilderness. But this wasn't where God's saving power ended. He didn't just take them out of Egypt and then put up his hands. No, we saw in chapter 32 to 34 that the people of Israel blew it, right? Just as we think God saved them, they've got out of slavery and they're going to enter into the promised land. They're going to have their tabernacle and everything is good. The nation of Israel experienced a sort of second fall like Adam and Eve did, right? They crafted this golden calf at the foot of Sinai. They jumped headlong into idolatry and indulged their every whim. And the second fall started with the same question, much like the first. Did God really say that we couldn't do this? One commentator put it profoundly that with the golden calf incident, we saw that God could take the nation out of Egypt, but he hadn't taken Egypt out of the nation. They were still a rebellious people, still caught to the traditions and the slavery that they had lived in in Egypt. And so God needed not just to save them externally, he needed to save them from themselves. And just as he did through the book of Exodus, he saved them through judgment. Plagues came on the people, but grace and mercy continued and carried them forward. God was glorified in salvation through judgment. 
And Exodus 35 to 40 signals that God's people have been fully forgiven, reconciled, and brought back into right relationship with him through turning back in repentance and faith. Notice in Exodus 35 how it begins. Look at verse 1. Exodus 35, verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, and on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. First, notice, God says, I'm going to invite you to enjoy rest in my presence. I'm, not, I'm going to have you enjoy perfect Sabbath communion with me, an imperfect picture of the rest that the people that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. God still desires for them to enjoy a taste of this while they're in the garden. But also consider that chapter 35 is leaving off where God left off in chapter 31 before the whole golden calf incident. At the end of chapter 31 of Exodus, after they're given the instructions for the tabernacle, God commanded the people to keep the Sabbath, to go, hey, I don't want you to just slave away on this project. I want you to do it my way. Work six days, rest one, continue to trust me. The people we read 32 to 34 blew it and sinned, right? But then in chapter 35, after all of that is, go- is done, God is commanding his people again to keep the Sabbath. He is beginning where he left off. He saved them from Egypt. He saved them from themselves. And he says, I will continue to take you back because I am a merciful God if you will turn and repent and trust me. God is mighty to save. That's what we see throughout the book of Exodus. And actually, throughout the book, we've seen that it's the angel of the Lord who would lead them through the Exodus and to the promised land. And one of the reasons this matters so much is as you look at the ministry of Jesus and the salvation that Jesus would bring, it's always or most often put in Exodus language. God wants to use the Exodus as a picture for how he saves you through Jesus. Let me show you this. That Jesus, from his virgin, from his death through a virgin girl to his sinless life, to his death on the cross, to his resurrection from the dead, was bringing about a new exodus for a new people of God. That our God is still a God who saves. We see this as Mark opens his gospel. And you, know, be very, you may be very familiar with how Matthew and Luke open their gospels, right? It's Christmas time. That's the section we read at Christmas. But Mark chapter 1 does something different. Look what he does. One, Mark is very straightforward. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No frills, no nothing Straight to the point. Then he says, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way and the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark begins by putting together the words of Isaiah, who was a major prophet, and the words of Malachi, who was a minor prophet. And in those days, if you were putting them together, You would summarize it with the name of the major prophet. 
And he was telling about how the Messiah was going to come, but that before he came, a messenger, an angel, would come before him and prepare the way. Friends, remember in the Exodus, God would send an angel before them into the land and to help lead them through the wilderness. So God would send a messenger from the wilderness to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. This messenger was John the Baptist. Jesus was going to perform a new exodus. During the transfiguration of Jesus, when he's shining on the mount with all of his glory and his three closest disciples are there, we read that two men made a guest appearance. Moses and Elijah. I want you to just imagine, you're there with Jesus, he's shining. All of a sudden, Moses and Elijah pop up there. I don't know how they knew what they looked like, but they just knew. And they spoke together about the work that Jesus would accomplish. And here's what they said. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, being Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, in your Bible, if you look there next to the word departure, I hope you have a little one next to it that will take you down to the bottom of the page and will tell you that in Greek, the word for departure there is the word for exodus. I know that my ESV Bible has that, telling us that what Jesus would accomplish when he went to Jerusalem would be a new exodus for his people. We even see the new exodus in the promise of the Lord's Supper that Jesus would give. He, take, he took the Passover meal and he said this, the bread and the cup are the blood of the new covenant in my blood. Here's the point. The exodus from Egypt is the central picture of what it looks like for God to save his people. And it means that God always saves single-handedly. God always saves by his power and might and grace. And through Jesus, God would single-handedly rescue us out of slavery to sin, just as he single-handedly rescued the people out of slavery to Egypt. He would judge the Egyptians and extend mercy to his chosen people. And friends, at the cross, Jesus would bear the plagues so that he might extend mercy to any and all who trust in him. The point of the Exodus is to remind you that you don't save yourself, but that God and God alone saves you. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite old dead guys, famously said that you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. And I think that's true. And I think if he were commenting on the Exodus, he might say the only thing that the nation contributed to their Exodus from Egypt was the, was the slavery that made it necessary. Friends, we don't earn our way back to God. We don't somehow help God out as if God couldn't save us in his own power and might. God saves. That is the message of Exodus. It's all of a grace and of a power outside of you. And the pathway to salvation for the Hebrew people in slavery or for you today is to give up seeking to save yourselves and to trust in the Lord. 
to trust his grace and his way of salvation, to trust in Jesus alone to save you from your sins. But it's important to note the Exodus doesn't end with salvation. If that was the case, it'd only be about 18 chapters long, and it's definitely longer than that, right? And and it's important to realize God doesn't just want you to get saved, and he doesn't just take you up to heaven, right? He wants you to continue to live. There's more to the story. There was a second stop for the people of God beyond Egypt and being rescued out, they would stop at a mount called Sinai. And that shows us the second lesson from the book of Exodus. It's that God speaks to his people. God saves his people, but God also speaks to his people. If one thing is clear, if you go home and read these five chapters, it is that God is a God who desires to instruct us in his will. He is a speaking God. Let me just give you one example of this. Exodus 35, verse 1, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Exodus 40 opened with the words, the Lord spoke to Moses. The phrase, as the Lord commanded them, appears somewhere around 25 times in these five chapters. God speaks to his people. Remember, he spoke to them from cloud and fire back in Exodus 20 and gave them the Ten Commandments. God spoke again in Exodus 21 to 23 and gave them the instructions for how they were to structure the nation of Israel. And God spoke again in Exodus 25 to 31 and in 35 to 40 about the religious ceremonies and the symbols and the building of the tabernacle among the people. Our God is not silent. We have a God who is very talkative. And his words were written down by Moses and have been copied forward for us to have and to hold and to study today. There's many times people may come to me or you may hear it. People are like, I just long for a word from the Lord and yet they've got his book shut and on a shelf. Or they go, no, pastor, I don't mean that. I need to hear an audible word from the Lord. And I'm like, great, the Bible app will read to you. Friends, God has spoken and his word has been written down and perfectly preserved for us through the power of the Spirit and his gracious sovereign hand. We do not often take advantage of this incredible blessing. Friends, not only do we have the Bible in our language, you've got tons of Bibles in your language. I don't know if you've ever scrolled through the Bible app. There's some of those translations. People are like, what is this? I'm like, I don't even know. I don't even know what that is. And friends, we have a plethora of resources in order to understand the Bible at a level of depth that has never been possible before. And that doesn't mean just go and Google things and everything Google tells you is correct. You're going to find some kooks out there as well. But yet, in America today, and even in the seats and in the pews of churches and the buckle of the Bible belt, Biblical illiteracy is rampant. We must be word-centered people and get back to what God has said. To study and to know, we often will talk about how we want things to be biblical, but then when you talk to them about it, they really don't even know what is biblical. 
Have we ever thought about what it would be like if our God was silent? The deists of the past believed that God created the world, left it to spin according to laws of logic, and just sort of stepped out of the relationship. That God made us and then shuns relationship and communication with us. What would we know if God were silent? What would we be left with if God had never spoken or revealed himself to us? And friends, the incredible thing is that God hasn't just spoken. He's spoken in several ways, and he speaks at several volumes. First, think about this. God spoke in the way he made the world. You know this. You can look at a painting or listen to a song, and you know that that person is communicating a message to you. And our God is an artist shouting through the world he made. And the message he's shouting is his divine power and his eternal nature. In other words, you can look out at the beautiful sunset that we'll have, and God is going, I'm here, and I'm great, and I'm holy, and I'm far beyond you. But ultimately, God's speech in creation is only enough to show us that he is and what he is, but not enough to bring us into peace with him. Just like if you were to listen to a song, you can know something about the artist by the song that you listen to, but you don't know the artist as a friend. I can give you a perfect example of this. You can know a lot about what's going on in Taylor Swift's life or what her boyfriend was doing, whether he was good or bad, by the song that you listen to. Right, You can know how things are going with Travis Kelsey by her next album, right? But, friends, that doesn't mean you're friends with Taylor Swift, right? You would need to communicate directly with her and her communicate directly with you in order to have that sort of relationship. And so for us to come into communion with the living God, he has to speak to us, and we need to be willing listeners to hear and to receive what he has spoken, and we need to speak back to him in prayer. But thankfully, friends, God gives us a backstage pass into life with him. And we have a benefit that Moses and the nation of Israel didn't have. We've got the whole book. They didn't have the whole book. We've got all God's word written through his apostles and his prophets for us to study and know. We have the God-breathed scripture, and we're told it's profitable for training, for teaching, for building up in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. Friends, God has spoken, and that means that truth isn't subjective, just sort of left up to our own opinions. It's interesting, our culture will have very strong opinions about what's right and wrong, yet tell you in the next breath, well, truth is just subjective. You can't have it both ways. Others will say, well, truth, if God hasn't spoken, we're just left up to, to kind of live how we want. There's no accountability besides what other people think about us. And no wonder folks go and live however they want. And friends... God has spoken, which means we're not left without the ability to do what God has asked us to do. And that's the third message of the book of Exodus. God saves, God speaks, and third, God provides for his people. God saves, God speaks, and God provides for his people, not just through his word, but friends, God provided for the nation throughout their whole journey in the wilderness. 
Exodus chapter 16, you can go back and read it. God provided manna and quail for the people. But that continued beyond that chapter. I like to think he just had little Chick-fil-A chicken minis dropping out of the sky to take care of them, right? But we need to remember, that wasn't just a one-time thing. That happened throughout their sojourning in the land of Egypt. God was with them in the desert and on the mountaintop. He would never leave them nor forsake them. And that was clearly seen in the fact he would provide for them day after day after day. God provided quail sandwiches, but God also provided clear direction. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Look at the end of Exodus, Exodus 40. Look at this. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was in the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This cloud has been sort of a supporting actor throughout the book of Exodus. It's been everywhere. As they've, from the moment they stepped out of Egypt, the, the angel of the Lord, this pillar of cloud and fire, was leading them where they should go. God provided for his people and gave them a clear sign when to stay and when to go. And in one sense, I almost wish God would do this for me. I wish I'd step out of the house and God would just sort of drop a pillar and I could follow the pillar where I'm supposed to go that day. But to be honest, sometimes I wonder what I actually do with the pillar had to say. You know, when it scoots on by the Taco Bell that I know I don't need to have, would I still listen to it or would I pull in and think that I know better than God does? My friends, I also want to say we have something better because rather than the, the glory and the fire being outside of us, the Bible says God's put the glory and fire inside of us in the Holy Spirit. God is able to guide us by the Spirit and formed by his word throughout all of life. But would we be willing to trust his provision and his guidance when it comes to us? God gave them food. God gave them direction while they were in the wilderness. But God did so much more than that. He provided everything they needed to do everything he called them to do. Just think about the incredible feat building the tabernacle was. Let me show you a picture of the tabernacle. It looks something like this. had all this gold in it. Friends, it would have been a huge task. And let me just show you what an incredible feat this was. Chapter 38, verse 21. Here's what we read. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. In other words, we get the full building records. What did it take to build it? Verse 22, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Ur of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Ohaliab, son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twine linen. So we get to meet the contractors, these two guys we read about, chapter 31, Bezalel and Ohaliab. Then look at this, chapter, or verse 24. All the gold that was used for the work, 
in the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. A talent was a measurement of about 75 pounds. So in other words, there was over 2,000 pounds of gold in the tabernacle. These people are in the middle of the desert. Look at verse 25. The silver from those of the congregation who were recorded as a hundred talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. Friends, that's over 7,000 pounds of silver. And we come to read that there were over 600,000 men alone in Israel, in this nation. Friends, the list goes on. This was an incredible project for the nation in the wilderness. And yes, they had the goods they plundered from Egypt. But how could they accomplish this? God provided everything they needed to do everything he needed them to do. And as they built the tabernacle, we see an incredible thing happen. Look back, chapter 36 and verse 2. Look at, look at this. Chapter 36, verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Ohaliab, and every craft, craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come and do the work, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came and each from the task that he was doing. So Moses gave command and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary so the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. God had given them everything they needed to do and more to accomplish everything he needed for them. And friends, God promises to do the same for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. If there's one promise that I would love for you to hang on to, look at this. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, God is able to give you everything you need to do and everything you need in order to do everything he needs you to do. All grace for all sufficiency at all times and all things, God will provide what you need, but that doesn't mean he will always give you what you want. And that's good news because the nation wanted a golden calf. They used some of the gold God gave them to build the tabernacle to build an idol rather than honoring God through golden gifts. Do we recognize as God's people that God has given us everything we need to live a godly life? God didn't just save us and then go, hey, do the rest on your own. No sin no longer has dominion over us. God's power dwells inside us and empowers us for the life of faith. God has given us his word and his spirit and the body of Christ around us 
so that we might do everything that we need to accomplish and everything that God calls us to do. We are not under-resourced in the calling of God, but are we under-faithful with what God has given us? God's given us everything we need to do everything we need to do, but maybe the reason we don't have it, whatever it might be, is that that's not something we need to do. Are we equally prepared to do all God calls us to do? God provided for his people. That's one of the central messages of the book of Exodus. What he began, he would bring to completion. And that would mean bringing his people into his presence. And that brings us to the last point. God saves, God speaks, God provides, and God dwells with his people. Everything we've seen was for the purpose of God dwelling and living with his people. That's actually where the book of Exodus ends. It says, Moses finished the work of the tabernacle, a sigh. And then we read verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and, the Mo- and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from, all, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Notice a couple things. First, notice the tabernacle is now called the tent of meeting. If you remember, while they were constructing the tabernacle, Moses sort of had to work at a mobile office, so to speak, right? He had another tent, a smaller tent, called the tent of meeting that was placed outside the camp, far away from the people. But now the tabernacle has been finished. There's a new and better tent, and it's placed among his people. In fact, God descends in cloud of cl- in a cloud and fire in the sight of his people. He dwells again with them. Also notice, the story isn't done here. We read that Moses was unable to go into the tent because of the cloud. And this reminds us, that Exodus isn't the end of the story. In fact, Moses by himself has three more books he wrote that are going to answer this question. How in the world can he enter into the tabernacle? There's some tension left to be resolved. He goes, hey, there's another movie coming after this. And we remember that Exodus is still early in the story that God is writing. We live long after these events in the desert. And we recognize that this tabernacle, with all its glory and all its beauty, pointed to something, namely someone, far more glorious and beautiful. Let me show you this from the the Apostle John, who's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, And he opens his gospel with these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He had said earlier that this word was with God and was God, and that it has come to dwell or to tabernacle among us. 
that God took on the tent of human flesh with greater glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And friends, rather than come to dwell with us in an ornate tent, God came to dwell with us in a lowly manger as a tiny human baby. The tabernacle prepares us for the Christmas message. Exodus has a Christmas punchline at the end. God would come to dwell with us. And it's a reminder that the way into God's presence is not in a place, but through a person. And the end of the story is that the baby born on Christmas was the baby they've been waiting for. And he would grow up, be the savior of mankind, and bring creation back to Eden so that through him we might enjoy a never-ending story of God's great glory. Friends, God is inviting you into a greater exodus from slavery to sin. He's accomplished it with his death and resurrection of his son. And that's an invitation, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to place your trust in him. And he'll lead you through the wilderness of this life to a glorious promise land, and it's this exodus that we remember in the Lord's Supper. And the Supper is for those who have trusted in the baby in the manger, in the cross on which he died, and on the tomb with which he emptied. If you're not a baptized follower of Christ, the Supper is an invitation to trust Jesus. And I'd invite you to let the elements pass and to to take this time to talk to God. He is ready and able to hear your cry and save you and meet you right where you are. But for those on the journey through the wilderness of this life, the new Exodus meal is here to encourage you onward because a better Eden awaits. Let's pray and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. Father in heaven, you have made incredible promises to us through the tabernacle. The tabernacle was not just a a historical reality. It was. It was not just a place where the people of God in the desert could meet with you. It was. But God, it was a prophecy pointing forward toward a baby in the manger who would save us from our sins and would do a greater exodus work in our hearts and in our lives. God, I pray that through this message, through your word, and through the supper, that anyone here today who is not trusting in you as their Lord and Master and Savior would do so. And that they would trust you to lead them all the way home back into your presence. But for those of us who are trusting you and walking with you, I pray that this meal and this word would encourage us to continue onward, empowered by the spirit you provide and the word that you've spoken, knowing that what you have promised, that what you've begun, you will complete. And we ask that you'd be honored, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
God has given his people a new exodus with a new exodus meal, unlike those in the wilderness where there was a mixed multitude of believers and non-believers. In the new covenant, we're promised that all will know him, all will be filled with his spirit. So this is a promise for believers to take and to receive and to, in many ways, graphically eat what Jesus has done on our behalf. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A second sermon, a second proclamation that what God has promised to do, he has assured through the giving of his son on our behalf. What all the people in the Exodus generation were looking forward to and longed for has come in a baby in a manger and a savior on a cross and in a tomb emptied by his resurrection power. And we head out today empowered by his spirit, empowered by his promise for the road. Uh, Just as a note, we'll start our meeting at 11... 20. That's nine minutes from now for those who are staying for our meeting. But regardless, we go in his power by his blessing. This from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.